random hundred people. Well, I've got some reverb here going, don't I, Becky? <laughs> if you sat down a hundred random people and asked them to name the most well-known stories in the world, surely the one we're going to look at today, David and Goliath, would make the list. It is probably the best-known story in the Old Testament, possibly in the Bible. It's arguably one of the best-known stories in the entire world. We all know the story of the underdog who defeats the great odds. We've probably heard sermons on uh, you know, facing the giants in our life through, through faith. Uh, every child, or not every child, it used to be every child would know this story. I remember uh, when we first wanted to start telling our grandson, Timothy, and he was about two and a half at the time, Bible stories, this is where we started. And so we're explaining all this to him, and you know, I'm always wondering, okay, what does he picture in his two-year-old mind when I tell him about these things, and you know, Goliath was a giant, and they were fighting this battle. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm sure he's got some things confused because later on he wanted to uh, play act David and Goliath as a team fighting the zombies, um, which we did. I was Goliath, of course, because I'm a lot bigger than he is. So anyway, uh, he didn't get all the details right, but his spirit was, was right there. Now, this is both kind of a blessing to us because we don't have to go through every detail of the story. I'm sure we know it. But it's also a challenge. It's a challenge because what we think we know of the story, while true, doesn't go near deep enough. What if I told you that the story of David and Goliath is not really a story of an underdog facing uh, impossible odds and, and getting the victory? That's not its primary purpose for us. What if I told you that it goes far beyond the story of David and Goliath or even the story of Israel? What if I told you that this story is part of the symbolism of God's plan of redemption going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, culminating in the last chapters of Revelation? That Goliath himself, in a sense, is a symbol not only of the Philistines, but of the evil arrayed against God and God's purposes. And that David, in a sense, is a symbol of Jesus, the one who's to come, who defeats the enemy. What if I told you that in this, God shows us how we can have a wonderful part in this battle. Well, that's what I hope to show you. Um, and we're going to start here in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this is a long story. In fact, it's 41 verses before David and Goliath actually fight. And we're not going to read each one of these because, again, I think you know most of them. But let's give a summary version here. David and Goliath... <clears throat> Well, before we do that, let's put this in context. This is our third sermon on, on uh, Saul and David. We started with Hannah. Two weeks ago, we looked at God's rejection of Saul, last week the anointing of David. Now, I alluded to something I didn't develop here. Chapter 15, which is the story of God's rejection of Saul as king, there's a, there's a motif here that runs through it again and again, and that is the idea of listening. And you see it here. When Samuel comes to confront Saul, because Saul did not obey the word of the Lord. Uh, and, and Samuel says, well, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And then little, just a few verses on. Has the Lord of greater delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And here we get finally Samuel or Saul admits the problem. I have sinned, for I transgressed the commandment of the Lord. In other words, I did, did not listen to him. And your words, because I feared the people and obeyed 
their voice. So Saul's rejected as God's king because he has listened to the voice of the soldiers who wanted the plunder rather than God. And that idea of listening is very important. It implies that's why he was rejected. And then we see in chapter 16 then, we see seeing. And there's a lot of emphasis on what is seen. And, and here's a key passage where Samuel was told by the Lord, don't look, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And we developed that last time of how God is seeing something that we don't see, that there is a, a reality that he sees and understands that we cannot understand with our own eyes. And then finally, last week, we looked at how um, Samuel anointed David as his prophet. And I, I want to develop then this theme throughout this sermon here, that those who hear God are able to see, and those who see are able to do. Or we'll put this more personally. You will be able to see what God sees to the extent that you listen to God. And you'll be able to do wonderful things for God's kingdom to the extent that you see the battlefield rightly. So David is a man after God's own heart. He's a man chosen by God. What is David's difference between he and Saul? It was because his heart was toward God, he wanted to listen for God, to God. And therefore, he alone is able to see things that Saul and the others are not able to see on this day of battle that we'll describe. So that's what we're going to develop. All right, here's the story in uh, 1 Samuel 17. Again, I'm not going to go through each verse. Philistines and Israel are in conflict. Who are these Philistines? Well, uh, by the way, we get the name Palestine from this. So the Israelis really don't like to be, this land to be called Palestine. Um, this is the the strip of land along the west coast, the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, right now, Israel controls all of it, but a little bit down here by Gaza. So there's a little strip here. Uh, there are five cities of the Philistines. Uh, each one has its own king or ruler. There is Gath there. I'll come into the story. The Philistines were a, a group of people called the Sea People who migrated um, from southern Europe or Greece, Cyprus, around that area. It's a little bit sketchy. But most scholars feel like they were very much associated with the Greeks, uh, early Greeks. And they had come and migrated and taken over the land. And they had assimilated uh, much of the Canaanite population, especially in this area here. And they were at war with each other. Now, we hear Philistines, we often think, you know, some slumbering brute of a giant, you know, with an IQ in the single digits maybe. Um, and, you know, they're, they're big and ugly and hairy, but they're, they're stupid and slow. And... Uh, that is not what a Philistine was. The Philistines were much more advanced, technologically at least, than Israel was. And you're going to see that if you look a couple chapters before. They had so much dominance that they had a monopoly on all Israelites, for the most part, didn't, didn't even have swords for their battles. So that's what was going on here. Now in the midst of that, there's these, these cities. One of the uh, peoples that were subjugated by the Philistines and to some degree assimilated were a race uh, that we'll call the Anakin or the Raphaim, and we'll get back to those in a second. Uh, so they're going to be part of Philistine, but 
from my understanding, they're probably not originally Philistine stock. Now, where is this battle? This battle is right in here. And we've got a very good description from uh, the Bible, first few verses of the chapter 17 of where the battle was exactly. And so we're able to locate this. This is cool because when you go to Israel as a tourist, they will tell you all kinds of fables and myths about, oh, this happened here and this happened here. And uh, nine-tenths of them are at least made up, if not unreliable. But this is one of the ones where you have pretty sure confidence because the Bible describes the geography so well. And there's actually two hills here. And this is the valley, um, the valley of Eli where it's fought. Now, uh, our family went there a few years ago on our sabbatical. This is in that valley. And there is a wadi, which means a, a seasonal creek or, or river. So uh, in the spring rains, I'll probably have water in it, but most of the year it doesn't. That wadi, oh, right there. That's our guy, Jacob. He's cool. And uh, he, brought, or he brought us to this place. And this is a kind of rock that would be in that wadi where David uh, picked up the, sto the stones. Now, you're going to notice that rock is a little bit bigger than, um, than what we may have pictured in our flannel graph stories, right? In fact, uh, we were able to take some of these rocks home. This rock comes from that very wadi. I'm not saying this is the rock David used, but could be. I'm not saying it's not, all right? Probably, though, uh, David chose one a little bit bigger. Uh, they were usually about the size of a baseball. And as we'll come to that in a minute, but this could be a formidable weapon. This wasn't a little stone from a, from a pond that we might think of. This was uh, an actual weapon, and it could be used to great effect. Um, so what happens here? Well... You've got these, the Hebrews, the Israelites, and the Philistines lined up against each other, and we're told day after day, this guy comes out, this guy named Goliath of Gath. And what are we told about Goliath? Well, first of all, we're told his height. He, he is a, a giant of a, looking at what the description is here, kind of translating that into our terms, and, and some manuscripts have a little bit different way of calculating that, uh, the estimates for Goliath run between 6 and 9 and about nine and a half feet. So, again, sometimes in storybooks you get like a 30-foot giant. Okay, it's not that, but you can imagine seven, eight-foot guy, especially at a time when the average male was about five-six, all right? Uh, this guy is double the mass, if not more. He's huge. But not only that, it tells us here he has the most advanced technology and weaponry available. For defense, he has a, a bronze helmet, it says. He's got a coat of scale armor, uh, kind of like this, and it weighed 125 to 150 pounds. He's got bronze greaves, which cover the legs uh, in battle. He's got a, not only a shield, but he's got a shield bearer who goes out in front of him. And then for offensive weaponry, he's got a sword, of course, standard issue for them. But he's also got a javelin and a spear. And it says the tip of his javelin weighed 15 pounds. It's a big guy. It's a big guy, huge guy, armed with the greatest technology of their time and boastful and proud. And he comes out every day and he shouts to the line of the Israelite army, aren't you servants of Saul and aren't I a Philistine? Come on, if sometimes we do this. He proposes uh, basically a battle of champions with the idea there that 
you send out your best guy, I send out my best guy, and, and we'll let the gods kind of determine who wins that by that, and then the other army is defeated and has to be their slaves. That's what we'll do. Now, he doesn't keep up his end of the bargain, but that's the bargain he makes. Send out one man to fight me. If I kill him, you guys are our servants. If uh, he kills me, then we'll be your servants and serve you. Well, surprisingly, <laughs> not. No one wants to come out and fight this guy, all right? No one wants to come out and fight this guy. In fact, it says this. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And it says earlier that Saul, when he heard all these boasts, and all the Israel was afraid. They were terrified of this man. They were terrified of this man. Into this battlefield comes someone that no one expected. He's a young man, probably a teenager, maybe even middle school, maybe a little bit older. He comes to bring food to his brothers who are serving in the army. Remember he had Eliab, his, his brother was there. He was, he was really tall too. We're not told how tall, but Samuel was really impressed by his size. He's there. He's not going to volunteer to fight. Saul's there. I mean, if anyone should want to fight this guy, it'd be Saul. Number one, he's a king. But number two, it says he's taller than anyone else in Israel, so much so that they only came up to his shoulders. One you'd pick. But instead, onto this battlefield comes a young shepherd boy. He's bringing food from his family to his brothers and their commander. And he sees this giant come out here, and he's inflamed with rage because he recognizes that this Philistine is insulting God's army, but through that also the living God. And so he begins making inquiries. He's brought before Saul, and uh, Saul, you know, he looks at basically says, kid, you got spirit. <laughs> I'll give you that. But you're a kid, and he's been a, a fighting man since he was a kid. And David looked at Saul and says, I want to tell you something. Yeah, I'm, I'm a shepherd boy. I'm not a warrior. But in my job as a shepherd boy, there was once a bear that came out of the woods to attack. And I, I took him on single-handedly because the Lord delivered him into my hands. Another time, a lion came to attack the flock, and I killed him too. And this Philistine will be just like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living, of the living God. It is the Lord who will give you the, the victory. And Saul looks at this guy and says, okay, go for it. I wonder what was in Saul's mind. Was he just so impressed that maybe some renewed optimism came in? God really is still with us? Was it fatalistic? I, I don't know, but he gives you permission. And it says, David went out there. Well, first of all, Saul wants to give him his armor, right? Which is a great honor. I mean, wearing the armor of the king. But David rejects it. He says, I, I can't see, but in that rejection, there's something about he wants to fight in a different way. Because what he does is he goes out there and he doesn't even take a sword with him. Instead, he takes this. This is a sling. A sling would just, just be a two straps of probably leather wound about, and then there'd be a pouch of leather. You'd swing that around, and at the right time, as you swung it forward, you'd re release one of those two straps of leather, and you'd go sailing. Now, I'm told that when this was done correctly by a good slinger that could reach 90 miles an hour, and you can imagine a rock the size of your fist or the size of a baseball sailing through at 90 miles an hour, if you're a good shot, that could be pretty effective. 
So David goes out there with no armor, no sword, only a sling. Goliath sees him and sneers. He seems to be personally insulted that they don't send out a great warrior, they send out a boy with a sling. And he looks at him and says, oh, he's got a staff too. Um, symbol of, of his shepherding, I, I think. But Goliath looks at him and, and he despises him. And he says, am I a dog that you come out of me with a stick? He's like, do you see me? And then he looks at David and he despises him and says, come here. And I will give your body to the birds of the air. And he curses David by his gods, Goliath's gods. David looks at him and says, you come out at me with sword and spear and shield, but I come out against you in the name of the living God whom you have defied this day, and he will give me into, the, into your hands, and I will kill you, cut off your head, and I will give your body to the birds of the air, that all the world will know that there is a God in Israel. Now, wait a second. Let's stop here for a second. Now, we, we know what happens, right? He hits him in the head. And whether he's just knocked out or dead at that point, we're not told. David cuts off his head. Can't be too sure about these things. Uh, besides, he's a man who really knows how to get ahead in life. And uh, cuts off his head, he holds it up, and the Philistines run, and Israel chases them and has a great victory. Now, when you're reading this, though, now we know the story. There should be some things that come to our mind. Uh, first of all, where, where did in the world the giant, this giant come from? All right, we'll, we'll get to that. But, but secondly, why did Saul or one of the other mighty warriors, some of whom were obviously larger than him, than David, all of whom were more experienced in battle, why didn't they go? And there's a reason for that. And the reason is because they were looking at this guy while God was seeing something far beyond him. It's not that they didn't believe in God, but in the day-to-day nitty-gritty of this battle situation, they didn't see him. He did not factor into their calculations. But David, the man after God's own heart, the man who has listened to God, the man who could say in Psalm 16, because I put the Lord always before me, I will not be shaken. In other words, I put him in his word, I put them right before me all the time. Because of that, he could interpret the reality in a different way. He could see things, the spiritual dimension, the spiritual battle in a way that they could not. You see, those who who choose to listen to God are able to see things as God sees them. And they're able to do things then that others cannot do. And we'll come back to that theme and I don't want to get too much into this because this would take a while. But David's story is part of a much larger story, Israel's story. And Israel's story is part of God's story. So one of the challenges is to see these stories not just from the viewpoint of David, but to see it from the viewpoint of, of the whole big picture. Because that's where a lot of the meaning comes for us. So it is a story from David's perspective in a sense. And we can apply that, but it goes much deeper. Now... Israel's story. Israel is brought in as God's people into the land, and part of their responsibility was to clear the land of the idolatry and the, and the evil that was there. And in particular, uh, from what I understand anyway, 
that was involved in clearing out the giants of the land. Now, there's a whole big story on this, and I'm not going to have time to dive into it because uh, there's a lot here, and some of it's a little bit technical. So on the back table out there, I, I put some handouts. They're about 15 pages long on where the giants came from, how they figured into the conquest of Israel. Um, so I'm just going to touch on that, on that briefly here. But this, goes, this story goes back all the way, not into Israel's story, but to God's story. Genesis 6. When men began to multiply on the face of the, of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. This is one of the most fiercely uh, contested uh, and debated passages in Scripture. On the face of it, it seems to imply that angelic beings, demonic beings, left their angelic role, took on at least a form of humanity, and, and mated with human women. And uh, that is the way it was often understood. Now, today, uh, we have other viewpoints. Some feel like this is the line of, the, the line of good through uh, Abel and the line of evil through Cain, or Enoch, rather. Sorry, I'm getting those all messed up. Some, uh, there are other interpretations as well. I tend to think that the original interpretation is correct. I, I don't know this. And it seems very odd to us that angelic beings could assume a human form and then interact with, uh, with human females. But I, I tend to believe now, and didn't used to, that this is probably the case. It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterwards. Now, what is Nephilim? Well, the word literally means fallen ones. But the idea is that these were associated with giants or associated with great, uh, powerful men. Um, and afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So that's one of the reasons why it seems like there's something supernatural going on here because the Bible seems to imply that the Nephilim, as it were. Now notice it says, on earth in those days and also afterwards. So, so for some reason, the Nephilim were not all destroyed in the flood. How? Maybe there was, uh, maybe the flood was, was local. Or secondly, possibly there was um, some of the Nephilim DNA passed on through one of the daughters, or, or daughters-in-law of, of um, Noah. Thank you. Or, and this is the way I prefer to think of it, probably this describes a process that happened more than one time. And um, if you're reading the Old Testament, it's, it's really fascinating. But you have the, the Nephilim become associated with the Anakim, and the Anakim become associated with the Raphites, and these are all giant races. Now, again, not 30 feet tall giants, but giants somewhere between, you know, 7 and, and 9 feet tall probably is what, what we have in mind here. Now, look at what it says in Joshua 11. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Zibra, and Adam, from all the hill country of Judah and the hill country of Israel, Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory, only in Gaza, Gath, oh, that's interesting, and Ashdod didn't even survive. So the three towns of the Philistines. This implies that maybe the main purpose of the conquest was to get rid of these people. Um, we also see that Goliath was not alone. Goliath was not the only giant around. And you can read these more fully in 2 Samuel 20, but there were at least four more. Uh, one of the descendants of Rapha, so a Raphite. And uh, in the course of time, there's another battle with Gob, and he killed Saf. This guy killed Saf. This is interesting. 
Another battle with the Philistines. Elnah, the son of Jer, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. And still another battle. There was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes in each foot, 24 in all. He also was descended from Rapha. And Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, so David's nephew would be, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha in Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. So, again, the Raphites are a race of giants. David's, or says Goliath's brother was one of these, so Goliath must have been as well. So there is apparently a pocket of these still remaining, at least in Gath. And uh, so the battle here, we begin to see something. This is not just against just the, this shepherd boy versus this giant. This is God's people in battle against the forces of evil. The forces of evil inspired by, if not literally the genetic uh, descendants of some, for, some sort of demonic power. Now that changes everything, doesn't it? Because what we're told is that when we understand it this way, we begin to see that what David is doing is being used by God to accomplish God's purpose against the final evil one, the final boss, as it were. Genesis 3.15, promise goes all the way back to here. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's speaking this to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That promise is the first promise of the coming one. The seed of the woman will destroy some sort of the seed of the, now is that a, a genetic seed? Is that a, a spiritual influence seed? Oh, well, I, I think we can, we can uh, take it either way, but one thing to notice here is that when Goliath is described as having scale armor, it's used um, about 20 times, that word, the Hebrew word, that's the Hebrew word there. And every time it means scales, like a fish or a serpent would wear, would have. And the only place it's, it's, it's translated differently is here, because he would have a, um, a coat of scales like a, like a fish or like a serpent. Um, it was the seed of the woman. Whether Goliath was the biological offspring of the serpent through the Nephilim, or merely the spiritual offspring, there is a connection with Genesis 3.15. David killed Goliath with the stone of the head and then cut off Goliath's head. David, the seed of the woman, crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. Thus, David's defeat of Goliath is ultimately a picture of Christ conquering the devil. And then he also notes this person, uh, this is from the handout I have back there, that also this, the, the main god of the Philistines was Dagon. And you remember there's a story where they, the Philistines captured the ark because Israel was trying to use it as a good luck charm in battle. And God said, no, I'm not going to let myself be used. They put it before their god, Dagon, in the temple. And Dagon falls down, bowing to God. They put him back up, and the next night he's not only fallen down again, but his head's cut off along with his hands. Dagon was apparently some sort of uh, fish god, something like this. This is an ancient inscription. Uh, a lot of people think this refers to Dagon. And you can see the similarities of, with the scale armor to the scale of the fish. So there's probably that going on here as, as well. So what's happening here? This is a, an example then of a spiritual battle played out in a physical war. And it's a good reminder to us that we also are part of this physical battle. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What does it say in Ephesians chapter 6? It says you need to put on the armor of God, not the armor of the world, the armor that the world uses, but the armor of God. And he talks about that prayer, faith, the word, truth. These aren't the physical armor that you could hold. And one of the things that we, we have to struggle with sometimes is translating this military imagery to the spiritual realm. So there's, there's two ways we can get this wrong. One is to just view everything as a military-type struggle and conflict. And so we view other people as enemies, and we have to conquer them politically, if not militarily. And that's to miss the symbol for the reality, I think. Because as he says here, our enemy is not flesh and blood. But it's against the spirits in the heavenly realms. The, the second way we can fail in this is not remembering, though, that we are in a battle. You were in a battle. You, you may be 12 years old in here. You may be pushing 90. Anybody pushing 90? All right. Um, it doesn't matter. You were in a battle. The evil one wants to destroy you. Now, ultimately, this is going to depend on Jesus. And you see that in the last chapters of Revelation, there's a battle between Michael and his angels. The great dragon or the great serpent, the same word was thrown down. So I'm going to wrap this up here. First of all, the battle is the Lord's. All right. The battle is the Lord's. We don't fight it by human means. We don't fight it in our own strength. We fight it in the Lord's. Secondly, the battle is the Lord's, but he uses us. I, I had a few questions before about, you know, why David? Why not Saul? Why not one of the others? Well, here, here's another question. Why didn't God, if this was God's enemy here on the battlefield, representing the evil one, why didn't God just send down a lightning bolt? I mean, he could. God will always, if he can, use those who have a heart towards him to hear him, to see things from his perspective, to do his work. That will always be true. As C.S. Lewis puts it, he seems to never want to do anything himself if he can delegate that to us. Why? Because God is developing us, training us to reign with him. And as part of that, he gives us the dignity of causation, the dignity of being someone who works and advances his kingdom, the dignity of a warrior who works to defeat the enemies of God. And that comes through listening to him, through praying to him, through putting our minds upon him, through living in his truth. It doesn't come by picking up a 45 at the sporting goods store. This is the way it comes. So we have a part in this battle. And then let's end as we kind of began. Those who hear God are able to see. And those who see are able to do this. Why was David after a man's own heart? Or God's own heart? Because he listened to God. He wanted to follow God. He put God before him. And Saul did. Why was David able to do what he did when Saul was cowering in fear? Because David, by listening to God, was in tune with another fuller dimension of reality. He could see not only Goliath, 
who couldn't see his Goliath, that he could see that there was a God on the battlefield as well. And it was God's battle, and he would simply be used by God. What would that mean to you? To listen to God? I want to end with one story, very brief, but it kind of illustrates this. Had the Orange Revolution, where they overthrew a very corrupt totalitarian government. And uh, there was a challenger for the presidency that year. And I believe his name was Viktor uh, Yushchenko. I may not be saying that right. If any Ukrainian speakers in here, don't, don't correct me too bad. It's a good thing about small church. So it's probably not going to happen. Um, and he, uh, he had been poisoned by the regime, but he survived. And uh, he went on, and, and he was ahead in all the polls. And, uh, and the government, though, tried to steal the election to falsify the results. And they put out through all the, all the broadcasts, which were controlled by the government, that Yushchenko had been defeated. And uh, all these journals were cowed into going along, even though they knew it wasn't true, because they had been fed what to say. And there was one woman who said no. Her name was Natasha Dromomsky, and she was an interpreter, a deaf interpreter on the air. You ever see those split screens, you know, where you, that's what they had on there, and, and they would have a service for the deaf, and, and she would be in a little square box down in the corner interpreting, and she wasn't interpreting what they said. She said, basically, I am writing, or I am communicating to all the deaf people in our country. Uh, the government is telling a lie. Yushchenko is the president, and I am ashamed to repeat their lies. Spread the news among all the trees. Other journalists, shamed by her courage, began to report the truth. And eventually, the corrupt government was overthrown because enough people were watching the truth. You know what I see? I see it as a picture of what's happening with us today. We had the big screen all in front of us, telling us what matters is power and money and success. And, uh, and it wants us to, to focus on the things of this world and maybe it does that and we feel terrified for the future of our society and our country. Or maybe we, we feel a, a million of things. Or maybe we're setting our eyes on those things. Uh, getting ahead in whatever sphere we put ourselves to. And there's a little corner down here saying that's not the truth. There's a spiritual battle here that's not going to be won by outward means. But by listening to God. Following God. Putting yourself in alignment with God. And then through that, advancing God's kingdom. That's what matters. What's down here in the small box of the truth, not the big screen of lies. Father, as we uh, sing this last song about the battle belongs to the Lord, thank you for that, by the way. Thank you that it doesn't depend on us, because we're not up to it. But thank you that we don't have to be passive victims either. Because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And we have the word of God before us. Would you teach us, God, to see things as you do by listening as you speak to us. Help us to put ourselves before you in church at the beginning of the week. Help us to put ourselves before you or you before us as we pick up your word throughout the week. And we listen to the truth. Thank you, Father. Thank you. We love you, Lord. Amen. Please stand.